as I look at the bigger picture and get more rooted into my spiritual well-being, I don't see myself as that selfish person who says, I'm hurt and I'm sad and why did all this happen to me? I almost see myself more as a soldier that walks through the fire to help others out of it. Welcome to the Let's Start Health podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Haynes. We live in a noisy world, and this space is intended to bring you clarity, enrich your bank of wellness knowledge, and inspire you to kickstart your journey to healing body, mind, and soul. I'll be interviewing industry professionals and bringing you raw, real, and personal stories of healing through gut health, intuitive eating, and the power of the abundance mindset. Thank you so much for tuning in and getting curious. Your journey to healing starts now. Hello, you lovely listeners. I am so honored to have you back for another episode of Let's Start Health. Today, I am so excited because... At the time that I am recording this, it is actually day three into Sober October. And I have to tell you, I am already, have already learned so much about myself and my habits in life. I think so far the hardest part for me has been looking at when I am just naturally tempted to reach to the refrigerator and grab a beer or pour myself a glass of wine at the end of the day to decompress or to, I don't know, just relax at the end of the day. On top of that, my new husband and I went and watched a baseball game last night. And as much as I thought that it would felt weird ordering a Perrier with lime, it was not weird at all. And what I came to realize was the stories that I write in my mind or have written in my mind for so long about what other people will think if I just order a sparkling water instead of a beer at the bar. It's been a very interesting journey and it's only been three days. So I am so excited to see how the rest of this month goes. By the time you are listening to this show, it will actually be a full week into this Sober October series. And if you are joining with us on this journey, I'd love to hear from you. Please find us on Instagram. Our handle is Let's Start Health and share your journey with us. Please comment on some pictures, send us some private messages, share in your story and tag us. Let's Start Health along with the hashtag Sober October so we can find you. And Become a part of this community of inspiration and second chances. Okay, so let's dive in. I am so itching and excited to introduce to you today's special guest, Sherry Garcia. She is the founder of a company called Cornbread Hustle. Cornbread Hustle is actually a staffing agency for second chances. So what that means is that she helps felons and people in recovery find meaningful employment or become entrepreneurs. We talk all about not only how she herself conquered meth addiction in 2007 and how she stumbled upon that path in the first place, but we also go deep into her most recent recovery from alcohol addiction. 
the irony of running a staffing agency for second chances while downing vodka Red Bulls to get by did not surpass her. And I am so happy to celebrate that by the time you listen to this, she will be 10 months sober from alcohol. You guys, this is a powerful, vulnerable, and deep episode. We go into all of the whys, the hows, and what keeps her moving forward on a daily basis. Please, as always, enjoy this episode. And by all means, please share it with someone who may benefit from hearing this amazing and inspirational story of recovery from someone who is actively doing the work herself, not only to be her best self, but truly to also better the world around her. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm honored to have you on here and I'm excited to hand the mic right on over to you. And I'd love just to have you introduce yourself and maybe share with us just a little bit what you are doing and then we can dive right in. Okay, sure. So my name is Sherry Garcia. I'm the founder of Cornbread Hustle, which is a staffing agency for Second Chances. I was absolutely crazy in my mind when I decided to create a for-profit banking on the success of people coming out of prison. Um, <laughs> and I still wake up every day and I think I'm crazy, but um, it's, as you can imagine, pretty rewarding. The mm. highs are really high and the lows are really low, but that fills the void of addiction, which is the same. <laughs> very high highs and very low lows. So I'm happy to be here. My background is in PR and marketing. So I use those talents from working in the newsroom or working at a PR firm to help people coming out of prison or people in recovery rebrand themselves and become the person they want to be and be seen by the person, uh, by the people they need to be seen by. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can imagine, you know, I think starting a new entrepreneurial venture alone always has those high highs and those low lows. And wow, to just like you said, go into it looking for a, nor uh, a for profit, depending on people coming out of prison. And it's funny because it leads me right into a few thoughts that I want to talk about, which we'll get into around stigma, which I'm really excited to dive into. But before we get there, would you mind sharing with us a little bit of your journey of addiction and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so in 2007, I kicked my methamphetamine addiction. I did not do a 12 step or go to rehab. It was just one of those things where, I mean, I honestly think I was still pretty young. It was just two years out of high school. Um, and I, I lost it all, but all wasn't a lot to somebody who was just in high school. So I think it was pretty easy for me to just quit the habit and bounce back and start from scratch. Um, I was pretty ambitious in high school. I started a business. I was doing um, senior portraits for all my friends and paying their moms. And I was, I was really like, I, I even had my own apartment in high school. So 
for me, when I lost everything, I was just starting back at ground zero where most people coming out of high school are just starting from scratch to build their life. So it wasn't too difficult for me. Of course, the two years that I was strung out on meth was horrible. And there's a lot of trauma from that. But since I jumped straight into entrepreneurship and working in the newsroom and just anything that I possibly could to kind of catch up on lost time is how I looked at it. I didn't realize that I never recovered and I just swept all the trauma. First of all, there was trauma that had happened that caused me to become a drug addict. And then the trauma that occurred from being a drug addict, being in really bad places around really terrible people. As you can imagine, there's a lot of different memories I have that are pretty painful. So since I swept it all under the rug and just jumped into entrepreneurship, I never worked through anything. And that's as I started to become successful, happy hours and getting drunk were a normal thing. And, you know, since I came from the background of hanging out with um, people who are scratching their face off. <laughs> I, I felt like I'm not doing anything wrong by binge drinking with successful people. And it just kind of spiraled from there. I, I still, I started Cornbread Hustle um, while I was still drinking. And, but again, I just didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I'm, I'm a grown ass adult. I'm not on probation and it's not against the law. And so now that I'm um, nine months sober, completely sober, got into the room, started working the program, I, I realized that um, I was not a great leader and I did have a problem, but I did all kinds of things to convince myself that I didn't have a problem, mm. such as challenges, you know, sobriety 90, 90 day challenges or going X amount of time without a drink and then at midnight on that 90th day, I'd pound my face off with alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. I'm nine months sober from everything right Amazing. Now. What a huge celebration, Sherry. I am so, you already hit on so many things that I'm, I'm looking forward to dive into. And I think it's really important not to overlook that. So congrats, my friend. This is really a huge accomplishment. And, you know, before we kind of dive into maybe the darker side of it, really just how are you feeling right now being nine months completely sober? I feel great. I've lost 40 pounds, Ooh. which is good. So I, I feel it. And I get hit on a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, wow, I guess those 40 pounds really make a difference. Um, and obviously, I'm sure my, my face is a lot. I, you know, they say beauty comes from the inside. And I, I find that to be so true. I'll still, I'll see a picture of myself that somebody posts from, you know, a few days ago and I'll be like, is that me? Mm. Like, I don't even recognize myself at all because I just, I, I, cause I don't know if you know, but recovery, it's like a super fast whirlwind of learning who you are every single month. It's a different phase of like, oh my gosh. I actually am a girl. I do like to get my nails done. Why did I always say I hated that? And really it was just because I was bitter 
that other people had the serenity and peace to be able to go to the nail salon, but I was still at the bar because I was on my sixth drink and I decided, ah, F it. I don't even care about nails anyway. I'm a tomboy. Mm. And yeah, so I feel great now. I would say the only, the only thing which I, I can ignore it is I got, I have 90% of people. So first of all, I never, ever, ever had to tell anyone about meth. Mm. or my DWI or my alcohol addiction. I could have just kept it all under wraps and just kept being my successful self. But with this latest sobriety journey, I just kept feeling like it would be, I wanted of course to wait till I was a year sober, then come out and tell everyone how hard it was and how I accomplished it. And here's what happened. But I, I remember all these years of, crying and writing in my journal wanting to quit drinking wanting to slow down and had I saw another girl like me who was an entrepreneur and out there networking and mingling and doing her thing and sharing her journey and showing her transformation and I know there's a lot of people out there that do that but I just didn't know the first place to look now I'm in the community I, I just didn't have those people popping up in my newsfeed. Now, if you look at my Instagram, it's just all types of people all over the nation sharing their transformation. But I would say 90% of people, they're reaching out to me. And I, I really wanted to reach the entrepreneurs and the business professionals that feel like they're too afraid to seek help or go into the rooms because they think they're not, quote unquote, that bad. Mm. And they have reached out and it's been great. But, you know, we also have the people that reach out and tell me that I'm not a fit to run my company because I can't stay sober myself and I only have nine months sober. And why am I promoting something so little and that I'm just all about self-promotion? There's a lot of people that come out and say hateful things like that, but mm. it is what it is. If 90 percent of the people are getting help and finding their own sobriety because of my story, then I can ignore those 10 percent. Yeah. And there's so much to that. You know, we are, we are all a reflection of each other. And when we start to better ourselves, we reflect the pieces. Um, you know, when I see someone who is doing better than me, it reflects to me the places within myself that I don't feel comfortable. So oftentimes, you know, no one who's doing better than me will, will put me down. <laughs> mm -hmm. They will just help lift me up and they will be celebrating my success. So if somebody is feeling negative towards your success, then they're probably on their own journey themselves. So I'd love to just touch a little bit, maybe work our way backwards a little bit. I love what you said about looking at a picture of yourself and not recognizing yourself. And, and I've heard this before, and it's so true that, you know, not only does beauty come from the inside, but truly radiance and our energy, it just, it's so much more than just what we look like. And when you look at a picture and you look into the eyes of yourself at a time where you truly felt lost, you know, it's like, it's like our soul has just gone into hiding, right? So The soul is gone when you look right. into the eyeballs of your old photos. Yeah, so I would venture to say, you know, the, the attraction that people are feeling towards you, which, you know, is not just on the physical level. It's also very much that energetic level. And I can feel it even as we're talking, you know, it's, it's this attraction to another person whose soul is desiring more in life, right? And it seems to me that your calling to share your story and your transformation is part of that journey. And I celebrate you and I'm so grateful because I think so many of us just say, oh, well, 
this isn't a big enough accomplishment in order to share it. It's the same thing with trauma. Oh, well, this trauma wasn't as big of a deal than it than a lot of other people. So I can't share my experience or I'm not allowed to be sad, right? It goes both ways. So working backwards a little bit, you mentioned that there, you know, oftentimes addiction can be a response to trauma. And I know that you mentioned it and I love just to kind of if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit, what led you, you know, here you are out of high school, you're still very young, you found meth. And, you know, do you think that your experience with that addiction might have been in response to a trauma and or a possibly lack of coping skills around that trauma? Yes. Mm. So my, I grew up in a very nice home. Mm -hmm. Uh, My family made a good income. I never went without, I was on the cheerleading team, pitcher of the softball team. And I even created a little news anchor thing at my school. And I was just totally ambitious and was the girl next door. Um, And, you know, I was still rebellious and did bad things, sneak with the bad boys and smoke a joint here and there. But um, that was more of, just to run around with the cool kids. But my parents went through a pretty bad divorce and they didn't, I I don't understand. We, I didn't really understand what was going on and without throwing anybody specifically under the bus, a very close family member of mine um, ended up trying meth and I didn't find out until my neighbor had told me that they were using, they were smoking. And I was like, smoking what? Marijuana? They'd never do that. They were like, no, um, ice. And I was like, what's that? And they were like, it makes you stay up late, get good grades, lose weight, um, be productive. And I said, well, sign me the hell up. (laughs) So um, I tried it. And then I did it every day for two years after that and started drug. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. So I was getting connected with suburban moms who wanted to clean their house and be super productive. And I would charge double the amount for a gram because I was delivering it. And, you know, they're obviously super nervous and wasn't going to go to the hood or anything to, or meet with the people they needed to meet to get it. So I was, it's tough because I live with the guilt. And I think that's why I started my program of bringing people who, I think maybe I was miserable and I wanted to bring people like me into misery. So I convinced Mm -hmm. other people of how productive it is and how skinny it makes you. And and I sold it to them. And, um, you know, obviously the, the glamorous part of doing meth only lasts for like, not very long. A month, <laughs> a month, you're like 30 pounds lighter and you're like, hell yeah. And then you're all of a sudden picking your face and like mm. running around outside naked chasing aliens. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, speaking yeah. for a friend, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking for a friend. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. I, the trauma, you know, I was at, I was in environments like being in the strip club on school nights and um, Mm. almost everyone that I messed with um, in terms of drug dealing or who it's just crazy. The things that I saw 
and mm. and um, it was okay to me. I didn't. I was so young too. I didn't mm. understand consequences. So I look back and I'm like, holy cow, how am I alive or not in prison for the rest of my life? There's so many people that I ran with that are in prison for the next 50 years because, and they got caught around the same time that I was hanging around. So I just mm. feel like I've had a whole bunch of grace and yeah. I had a second chance without having to get in trouble. And so I decided and made it my choice to come out with my story to help others because I, I just wanted to reduce this thing just eliminate the stigma of people thinking that people who did meth or got into drug dealing or have addictions look like the person we see standing on the side of the road or underneath a bridge. It's everyday people. You have a coworker at your office that has probably been addicted to hard drugs or alcohol. One in eight people have been addicted. So mm. I think it's one in eight, actually. Don't quote me. I'm no doctor. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, not only had you experienced this traumatic divorce where you didn't really know what was going on, and I can very much relate to that. <laughs> and I think that's like one side note takeaway for parents that's really important. Being the child of divorce is just emotional intelligence and really understanding what's going on. Kids see everything, and they, they know something's going on, and if you know, secrets are kept in order to protect, and I understand that, but it leads to confusion, and it leads to coping skills that are not healthy, and it leads to emotional in unintelligence, right? So that's just a little, like, side note. But so here you are now amidst this experience, and now you're given an opportunity, right? It's this opportunity to feel good and be productive, and being the ambitious person that you are, like, it seems like, well, who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, I'm kind of feeling like crap. You know, my parents are going through this experience. You know, I, I'm ambitious. Sure, I'll make a little extra money. Like, this is a great opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense, right? And now you said that you're, you're, you live with the guilt. So I would imagine that, you know, taking a step forward, that that is a lot of your process now is learning how to let go of that guilt. And I think you've been able to reframe and empower yourself by sharing your story. But, you know, maybe for someone who is feeling really guilty about their experience, can you shed a little bit of light on that and maybe some of the coping tools that you could recommend? Yeah. And, you know, I always tell people that I just share my journey. I don't, <clears throat> I don't give advice because I'm mm. still very wounded. Mm. Um, I'm only on I, I'm open about my 12 step. I'm only, I'm a slow, I'm a slow bloomer. I'm at nine months sober, but step four. That's great. So, um, you know, I'm still definitely really working through, you know, letting go of the past and who I used to be. And to be honest, and it's a tough discussion because you can't just tell someone, hey, go believe in God. But for mm -hmm. me, getting into church and getting into the word and really allowing God to take control of my life and release me of those burdens. That's what's really given me peace. Mm. And I'm still working on the peace thing, the peace and the, the being able to sit down and relax. And I'm very open with my community. Um, 
when I say my community, we at our company, any one of our applicants coming in to apply for a job, if they're vetted, they automatically become part of our community, which means we meet up and do a whole bunch of different things together. So mm. I'm very open and raw with my community on how I'm feeling and what I'm going through. And it's good because they look at me like, how is the founder of this company and who's always on interviews and TV dealing with the same thing we're dealing with? Like they're, they're just mind blown. So it's, mm-hmm. it's good. So I just share my journey. Amazing. Um, I don't, I don't give advice. And when I share my journey, it helps people self-reflect and ask them questions in their mind. And then they can seek help from somebody who knows what the hell they're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, that's, you know, that's sort of the, the intention with all of these conversations, you know, definitely not unsolicited advice, but just like you said, you know, that community is medicine. I truly, deeply believe that. And I mention Brene Brown often on my podcast because that's, that's part of what I do here is sharing vulnerably. And she does a lot of research with, with the concept of vulnerability. And she says that shame can no longer exist when someone chooses to be vulnerable and that vulnerability is met with empathy. So Wow, it's amazing that you've created this safe container, this safe community for people to come and to share vulnerably and to meet each other with that empathy. That is exactly how we start to heal and move forward from that guilt, move forward from that shame. And I love how you also mentioned, you know, just a a connection with something bigger than you, you know, and I always come back to when it comes to your connection with the divine words fall short of what that could possibly mean. So whether we use God or universe or angels is irrelevant. And however path you find that connection, nurturing that relationship with something that is bigger than us and finding inspiration from God's word or from some other community is so important. So that leads me to my next question was that, did you ever have the realization, you know, through these practices, through these steps, through coming back to a relationship with God that you're not broken, but rather your journey was a bigger wound that needed to be healing. And if so, how did you have that realization? Yeah, sometimes, and correct me if I answer this question wrong, but sometimes I think to myself that my sole purpose on this earth is to share my journey to help a way bigger problem. We have a huge population of people suffering. And I I know that God really, really loves people Mm. in prison and people suffering with addiction. And, you know, as I look at the bigger picture and get more rooted into my spiritual well-being, I don't see myself as that selfish person who says, I'm hurt and I'm sad and why did all this happen to me? I almost see myself more as a soldier that walks through the fire to help others out of it. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm human, so I, I'm depressed at least sometimes once a day. Mm-hmm. I get depressed because it's really, I, I picked a really hard business for a recovering hurt person. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not easy to have hope and to try to help people, you know, I mean, as you can imagine in my line of work, I get cussed out by people I'm just trying to help. 
or I'm let down because, you know, they begged for a job but didn't show up on the first day. And now I'm having to explain to the client why second chance hiring still is a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine having to, I mean, you are actively doing the work. And I think that's what's so important is that you know, the journey to healing of any kind is an active process. And I say this all the time, even to my clients as well. Like, I'm not above this work. I'm passionate about this because I do this work in my own life every single day. And it sounds to me like you had a transition, you know, from this sort of victim mentality of, oh, look at all these things that have happened to me and I could blame this person and that person. And you've just like you said, you've become the victor. You've become this soldier. You've found empowerment in it and this abundance from it. And it it brings to question, you know, those low vibe feelings that maybe are not desirable. It sounds like they don't carry you down, right? You, you have found a way to alchemize these lower vibe feelings. And I say that because I think oftentimes we just say, oh, depression is bad. You know, if I'm, if I'm having a bad day, then I'm bad and I, I need to go cope with that somehow. But you have found this way to alchemize this into energy. So how do you keep putting one foot in front of the other? What, what, do you, what goes through your mind on those low vibe days where you're like, dang, this is tough? <laughs> yeah. The questions you're asking now are definitely things that I'm admittedly going through. Mm. It's, I have to, I'm struggling. I have to wake up every morning and put one foot in front of the other. We are on a massive growth where we've done some really great of the, so three years ago, second chance staffing was definitely, well, it wasn't a thing at all. It was an idea that I had. But it definitely wasn't popular, anything, second chances. Um, Now, you know, Kim Kardashian's at the White House, and we have the First Step Act bill. So, and SHRM, Society of Human Resource Management, they've created an an initiative on getting talent back to work. So I, I am, like, in a really good position, and I'm doing a lot of podcasts and a lot of speaking. And we've been for the last three years sharing our success stories. And now things are starting to come to a head where it feels like we're in a very great, amazing position. And, you know, I guess we are. But at the same time, the, the growing pains of a real business. So in the past, when I wasn't working the steps or working on myself, growing cornbread hustle i still was making money every single month because i was a really great isolated solopreneur (laughs) (laughs) i was great i would have my red bull and vodka and sit at the bar and i would crank out work and i would be on my feet just fine and pay my bills and still wear the cornbread hustle badge now I am no longer a solopreneur. We, we're creating a real scalable business where I have to manage people and their feelings. I have to make sure processes are in place. There's just so much more responsibility than Sherry having enough in her bank account mm-hmm. to pay her fancy car or get drunk. <laughs> so they're putting the foot in front of each other, uh, in front of each other every single day. 
I do know that if it weren't for Cornbread Hustle and having a bigger picture, it would be extremely hard for me to deal. The, the hardest thing for me is dealing with things. I don't know what it is. It's like a trigger or something where I have to deal with making sure everything's on point for workman's comp or dealing mm. with the legalities of the business or the processes. Any of that stuff is just. I'm more of the creative free spirit person. And that's how a lot of it addicts are. So mm. being forced into a role that I'm not comfortable with, but having no choice is the hardest part about this. And how I put one foot in front of the other is, I mean, honestly, I think we had like seven people go to work last week, get jobs when they couldn't get jobs. Amazing. And and every time I want to give up, and I'm telling you, Chelsea, I want to give up every single morning I wake up. I'm like, oh, when will it end? <laughs> <laughs> and then I go to bed every night and I'm like, oh, but Jessica got a job and she's happy and her life is changing. So I guess I'll keep going. <laughs> and I know it's just, I think it's like growing pains of having a new business. It's tough because it's, I know if I just keep going, I think it's the hope that if I keep putting one foot in front of the other, I'll get out of the fire to where we can hire somebody someday to do those <laughs> things that just drive me insane. Yeah. And you know what's so funny? What's coming through for me right now is just what is so beautiful is that the soul work is part of my cuss is fucking hard. <laughs> like and, and I say that because I'm passionate about it and I can relate to it. And it's, it's everything, just like you say, even being an entrepreneur myself and showing up for clients and, and showing up for podcasting. It's like the legitimate, the, the logistics of it, you know, the oh, triggers. The logistics. The, yeah. Sometimes it's like, oh, I just would rather binge on Netflix all day. <laughs> but then I get off of a call with a client and they said, you know, I was waiting to talk to you all day long. I cannot wait to share with you this celebration. I just got a new job or I just got a pay raise or I just manifested this thing in my life and that all of those resistances within myself fall away. So it sounds like though these triggers for you are growing pain, all these things that hopefully you'll be able to outsource soon, it's a necessary part of the journey, right? And what's keeping you putting one foot in front of the other is being there for your people, you know, the the scalable business that's growing and not only creating jobs for the people that are working for cornbread hustle, but also for the people that are desperate to start a new life. So this is just, I am so excited about the work that you're doing. So may I ask you, what was the turning point for you? Like at what point nine months ago was enough enough? And you said, okay, I can no longer sit and drink my Red Bull vodkas and do this work. I have to let this piece of me go. Yeah. Um, so that was a journey in itself. Uh, getting and I, there's a difference between being sober and being in recovery. Mm. And I got sober many times without any admission to maybe I have a problem or just like I'm just doing this amount sober. So sober was nothing. It was just me trying to prove to myself I wasn't an alcoholic. Mm. I let's see. I will say that I, I look back in my journals and it, it really makes me so sad because, you know, 
I had this little five-year journal that every every year on the same day, every single day you write in it, and it's on this day, it's the same question and ask you, but for five years in a row. Mm. And, um, you know, sometimes the pages would ask, you know, what would you like to give up or something like that? And for the five years, every single year I had wrote alcohol. So I subconsciously like really hated myself for it and wanted to give it up. But I just couldn't, I couldn't picture a life without it, especially it's so it's, it's a culture thing in my family. Like ever since I was young, we get together, we drink, we eat period. Yeah. And yeah. I drew a lot of part. I hosted a lot of parties. I'm in the networking scene. So it was just one of those things where like, I wish I could just drink classier. That was like my, <laughs> my thing. And, mm-hmm. and so I would say that the journey to recovery began in December of 2017. I got a DWI or it was November. Um, on the cusp, I got a DWI and mm. I'm sitting in the back of a cop car and I'm drunk, but mm. I'm like, man, this sucks. What are you, you're the founder of a staffing agency for second chances and you're in handcuffs again. Mm. Like I didn't think I was going to be in handcuffs again in my life. Like, damn. I can't dodge these cops. <laughs> of course, I blame it on the cops. They shouldn't have been there when I was driving by. <laughs> and so um, I get out of jail pretty quickly. And I, and I, I mean, like literally hours later, I was like out and with the lawyer and all that stuff. And, and I still, you know, I started to convince myself that everybody drinks and drives. I just got caught mm. and it's just a misdemeanor. Like now I'm really starting to justify because I'm over here putting people with murder charges to work. And I'm like, gosh, it's not even a felony. Like mm. you know, some of my close um, guys who are really close to me, they're like, dang, sure, it's just a misdemeanor. Just go sit that shit out. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm gonna fight it. I think I can beat it. And um, and I, I beat a DWI before. I was clearly guilty, but I got not guilty because I just, I don't know. I just felt like I was the cute girl that was like, oh my God. <laughs> please give me another chance but then I sat with the attorney and reviewed the the tape and I was like yeah I'm not gonna be found not guilty (laughs) um so um you know I still I got the breathalyzer I was going through all the bullshit and I still found a way to try to drink around that thing and Mm. And it was tough. There were a lot of realizations on how much I was drinking because I couldn't just, it was really inconvenient. I couldn't just stop at the bar on the way home because then I have the car and I can't blow into the breathalyzer. I'm going to revoke my probation and go to jail. So I realized I was spending a lot of effort trying to plan my drinking and count the drinks and try to, they say if you're controlling alcohol, it's already controlled you. So I was trying to control alcohol like just count down, okay, how many drinks did I have? How long will it take to get out of my system? Okay, then I'll be able to make it to work out by six. Then I'd be on my fourth drink. I'd be like, skip and work out. I'll be able to make it to work by nine. 
And then next thing I know, I'm, I'm working from home um, mm. the next day. And I, I guess it was, you know, there were many times that during that time, I would try to stop drinking. And it was mainly because I was like, man, you know, it forced me to stop drinking as much. So when I did drink, I was like, why am I so depressed? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe alcohol doesn't make me happy. And I, um, I think the main thing that really, first of all, like the main thing that got me to start thinking in that direction of maybe I shouldn't be drinking alcohol is somebody reached out to me on Facebook and they were like, Hey Sherry, I just want to check on you. I called you earlier today because he messaged me at like four in the morning and he Mm -hmm. was like, or I called you tonight, but it sounded like you're in a loud bar and you sounded really slurring. And I I really hope you didn't drive. I just want to check to see if you're okay. And that's whenever I was like, hold up. Like nobody's ever told me about my behavior. Nobody really ever said, you know, of course I had friends that would be like, dang, you were wasted. But Mm. it was more of like, cool so were you (laughs) 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 and um I was just like okay somebody's truly reaching out out of concern Mm -hmm. and you know with the line of work that I'm in I'm like this I felt embarrassed Mm -hmm. and all it took was that message and I downloaded a book on my iPhone called control alcohol um and it it was speaking in there and I'll say a main reason why I drink is because I would be like shaking and pacing and had so much anxiety. So I'd have to stop at the gas station to get like a little bottle of wine before I went to a meeting or something, because Mm -hmm. I just was, I wanted to cure the anxiety. And when I read in that book that they started describing what withdrawals were, and I was like, holy cow, (laughs) not anxiety. (laughs) I totally didn't know. And I was like, so you're to tell me I'm like sitting in my bed I sat straight up and I was like so I've been using something to cure my anxiety that's been causing it it pissed me off Mm, I can imagine right that realization like dang it (laughs) it really pissed me off so then I started really not drinking much at all that was in 2018 I probably drank only so I probably drank only a total of 10 times or under through the whole 2018 but each one of those times that I drank because the breathalyzer and I'm a really busy person so I couldn't drink as much as my addiction wanted me to drink I just couldn't or else I was really gonna not show up to work Mm. and so the times what happened was during all those times that I drank I'd wake up the next morning with severe depression and anxiety, horrible. Even though I felt like, you know what, I'm going to cut loose. I'm going to leave my car. I deserve it. And the next morning I was just horrible. And enough of those times happened and it ended up being Christmas, Christmas day, or it was New Year's Eve. My family was like, park your car. It's cool. Just let's get drunk. And I was like, hell yeah, I even bought a bottle of my favorite, which was Tito's vodka. Mm -hmm. And I drank and I drank really fast, like to get drunk. And then for whatever reason, my subconscious was like, okay, now pound a bunch of water for the rest of the night, because technically you'll erase your getting drunk. 
(laughs) (laughs) And I did. I pounded waters. And I felt like totally stayed up sober when everybody else seemed drunk. And I was like, ha, I've beat the system. (laughs) And I, (laughs) I went to bed and I... I woke up the next morning and I was like, wait a minute. Why do I have anxiety? Why am I depressed? Oh my God. Why am I sad? And I was like, okay, fuck it. I'm done. And I went one by one and told each one of my family members that I think I have a problem and I'm going to stop drinking. And they all were like, okay, for another time. Good job. Thumbs up. Like, they were just like, whatever, how many times are you going to say it? And I'm like, no, I think I'm, like, for real this time. Like, I didn't even know yeah. that I was for real this time. I was just like, whatever. I just, I, I can't escape the depression that it's causing me. And mm-hmm. so I end up, you know, I, I end up going into church on New Year's Eve. And it was to avoid, I I wanted to just go to a place that I knew there wasn't alcohol and then had a movie plan so I could get through the whole night of not feeling bored and just sitting at home. And, you know, all these years, I actually didn't drink on New Year's. It was the one day that I was, I'm opposite of everyone. It was the one day (laughs) that I was like, I don't want to start the New Year off hungover. And I think it's because deep down I knew I had a problem. But Mm. I went into church and something something just got me like the holy spirit caught me and i came home and something was telling me to open the bible and look in it all this spiritual weird awakening i opened it up and it ended up landing right on proverbs 20 that said wine is a mocker and whoever is led by it is astray and i was like what the heck yeah <laughs> and, and i started it was like god totally rem- now god didn't remove the desire because it'll mm. never leave but it was like god removed the constant obsession of I need another drink and I um I stayed sober for a couple of months man I would say that I I stayed sober till I stayed sober till about six months until I decided I had a problem and I'm just now nine months so that's how much I did not want to let go of control Mm. and not I just didn't want to think forever and that I'm not going to have a drink ever again. But once you start seeing, so my path to recovery is a lot different than others, but, and I could have died in the meantime, honestly. So I don't recommend it to anybody (laughs) to drink 10 times in a year and taper off and figure it out. But I'm just such a stubborn, hard headed person. Mm. And I just had to, I don't know. I think what happened was all those months of taking it one day at a time, even though I wouldn't admit that it was one day at a time or I was in recovery, I finally woke up and was like, hmm, I look good. (laughs) Maybe alcohol wasn't good for me. And Mm. now we're making money. And now the business is taking off. And I think people respect me. And I show up with a gift on time to birthday parties. Mm. So... Then I decided to drag myself into AA because I started, um, I was really, I, out of nowhere at around six months, I got really depressed and, and I didn't know why, cause life was good and everybody kept hollering at me. You're a dry drunk. And I was like, what? Ah, I got angry. I hated the AA people. I was like, leave me alone. Get away from me. 
And I finally just went. I drug myself in there and it was like kind of to live. Because I was like, what's it? What, what do I need? Like, I'm sober and I'm miserable. I don't understand. And then I went there and all those people looked happy. And I'm like, how the hell is somebody happy 20 years without a drink? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so I just wanted what they had. And, and I was like, okay, I'll do just do whatever you tell me to do, because I'm tired of being sad. Because if I'm going to be sad, I'm going to get myself a Red Bull and vodka. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought this was a journey to happiness. What the heck's going on? And so what I've learned and the moral of the story of all of that, what I've learned is a big part of my sadness and depression was being feeling set apart mm-hmm. and not having a community or feeling like people didn't understand me when I first came out about my story. I mean, I've always told my mess story and all that, but I mean, being the founder of a second chance agency and motivational speaker and saying, hey, I'm struggling isn't the easiest thing to do. Mm. So I've learned that at the end of the day, my depression and horrible thoughts were actually something that's very um, preventable, preventable, and that's community. And I just needed to be around people that understood me. And because whenever you first get sober, you walk away from an old life, Mm -hmm. but you don't wake up one morning and have a new life. So there's this period of really depressing times where you feel like, hello, now I'm lonely. Now I don't have anything to do. And I'm sober. What the hell? (laughs) You know, and so that's why I'm trying even more so than before. That's why Cornbread Hustle has actually become a better environment because it it freaked me out to realize how alone I was, even as a popular girl. I was Mm. so alone. So it's community and connection Mm. is what people in recovery really need. All the other tools, you know, they help. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that up and you hit on so many things. And one thread that I'm noticing through your whole story is that through it all, you really gave yourself permission to lean into your intuition, which I think is just so powerful, whether you realize it or not, right? Like just following those gut feelings and those aha moments and giving yourself permission to have small moments of awakening that now are threading together into this bigger picture, right? That one day at a time that all of a sudden now it's been a couple months and you actually look in the mirror for the first time and it's Wow. So, I mean, even, you know, that moment of realization when your friend called you to reach out and you thought, wow, this is, this is genuine concern, right? This is something needs to change. So it's funny because the root of, and and it's not even for people in recovery. And it's so wild to think that we self-sabotage so much because there are three basic needs of every human being. And that is to be safe, first and foremost, to be loved, And then lastly, to be accepted and to be accepted into our groups, into our peers, into the people around us, into our society, into our clan, and just kind of circling it back around all of those excuses that we make, right? In the early days, oh, well, now I'm hanging around with entrepreneurs and successful people. So of course I'm going to go to happy hour and that's okay because I'm accepted here, right? And we're, Mm -hmm. we're celebrating our successes. And I can really imagine that 
this shedding, right? This letting go. And, and I think most people, whether you're on a journey to sobriety or recovery or any journey, healing of any kind or moving through traumas of any kind, it often takes letting go of something, right? So whether it's a certain belief that's no longer working or a value or excuses or habits or addictions, you, you gotta let it go. And that doing that alone, like you said, is the loneliest, scariest place. And our critter brain, our lizard brain, that piece of us that wants to survive will not let us do it without community and connection. So mm -hmm. thank you so much for that. So let's take one more step forward here and tell me about where the inspiration of Cornbread Hustle came from. I'm so excited to talk about this and to hear more about your company. Yeah, so I actually started volunteering with the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. Um, they, they teach entrepreneurship and business plans inside prison. A mentor of mine, and this was before I came out with my meth story, but a mentor knew about it. And he was like, maybe you'll, you'd find some joy. And, you know, you found you've invented a product and found some su success in entrepreneurship. So maybe you'd like to go into prison and help people. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that sounds perfect. So I started helping people and working on business plans and going to their business plan competitions and you know, a couple of years go by and I started getting Facebook friend requests and it was from people coming out of prison. And I was like, hmm, guess they need assistance on building that business now. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so I, um, very long story short, I ended up hanging out in the halfway houses and that's where I wanted to spend all my days, even though I had plenty of work on my end. I just ignored it, totally neglected it. And I started, you know, realizing that these guys were getting out, didn't even have a driver's license, needed to get a job within two weeks, had an ankle monitor. And I was like, okay, so let's put the business plan to the side <laughs> <laughs> and let's, let's reverse engineer where you want to be to where we're at. So um, mm. what do you want to do? What's your dream job? If you could do anything in the world and not worry about paying bills, what would it be? If they said paint an auto body, I want to own my own shop one day, I'm getting them an entry-level job with a second chance friendly paint and auto body shop that's going to let them shadow them. So they feel like they're going to work every day for a bigger goal than just this is the only job I can get and this is the only pay I can get because I'm a felon. And so I did that over and over and over and over. And I woke up one day and I was like, well, that's great. I got a whole bunch of people a job, but I worked myself out of one because I have no clients because I put all my focus into helping these people in the halfway houses. And that's when I decided the entrepreneur that I am, I was like, okay, so if this is your passion and you found it, how do you monetize it? Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody was like, make it a nonprofit. You're helping felons for God's sakes. And, I'm, and why don't you help animals or babies? <laughs> You're pretty. Like you don't need to be going into prison. Blah, 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 blah. I heard it all. And I was just like, I'm not making it a nonprofit. I don't want to spend time raising money. I want to spend time raising people. So I need to put my money where my mouth is. And if I tell people that these guys make great employees, I'm going to believe in it so much that I don't pay my bills unless they make great employees. I, I still wake up every day and wonder why the hell I decided to do that. But um, 
I, I that's it. I just I had to Amazing. be in an advocate for entrepreneurship, and I couldn't survive without the nonprofits around me. So it's nothing against them. Like most of our greatest employees come from the Prison Entrepreneurship Program, and I love Bridges to Life, which is a, another company that helps inmates transform their minds. So nonprofits or the shit, they're awesome. It's just not for me. I can't. I can't spend time having galas and doing walks and raising money. It, it stressed me out. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a hustler. I'm more of a. I I want to give something to get something type person. Absolutely, and that is your path, and it's so amazing. And it's funny when we start to like listen to other people and question our own intuition and question our own integrity, how we find ourselves down these different paths. Right? You could have very easily made this a nonprofit, and it would have been this like great nonprofit organization helping people get jobs. But you said, no, that is not what my gut is telling me. That's not my journey. That's not my story. I'm an entrepreneur and we're going to make money from other people making money. And that's what we're going to do. And we, I love what you said. We're going to not raise money. We're going to raise people. Mm -hmm. It is so amazing. So tell me who are your services at cornbread hustle? Who are they for and how does it work? So we have clients ranging from, um, franchise pizza places to concrete companies to even startups who are looking for developers. So mm-hmm. we've placed people in six-figure positions. Um, so that's the only thing that I would say that's difficult on my end about my business is we're not in one niche where it's totally scalable mm-hmm. because I just won't allow myself to do that knowing how many people come into our office and they have a certain skill and I want to see them succeed. So um, anybody, basically any employer that wants to open up to be second chance friendly and realize the, I mean, it's just, it's not a favor, it's a blessing to you. Because you get to see somebody grow and thrive and you mold them from the ground up. And um, we work just like any other staffing agency. We charge a percent markup, which ranges from 40 to 60%. So we never pay our employees less than $10 an hour. It's a rule of ours. There's a lot of temp agencies out there that will pay minimum wage. And mm-hmm. we're wanting people to grow and thrive, not still suffer and work and still mm-hmm. not be able to pay bills. Yes. So we never pay lower than $10 an hour. So companies will pay us in between 14 to 16 bucks an hour for 90 day Um, process. And as we grow and we start to get more traction, a lot of companies are starting to pay us services for PR and marketing to share their story of their second chances within their workplace. Mm. So while that's our base where we charge like other staffing agencies, there's also a lot of other services that are wrapped up into some of our packages. But that is on the side of clients. And then mm-hmm. obviously we have direct hire. Sometimes they just want to hire direct from us and pay a percentage of the annual salary. It's usually 20% of that. And they just take the employee and it's off our payroll. And we're not the ones handling any of the insurance or anything. And mm-hmm. the clients we serve are just basically anybody coming out of prison, anybody in recovery. You don't have to go commit a crime to get a job with us. But I will say that every single time we have said, okay, you don't have a record and you want an opportunity, every single time, without fail, they did not show up to work. Mm -hmm. So um, 
but we're still open. If you come to me and say, I've gone through a really nasty divorce and I have nothing and I need to be in a group and I need to be with community, I'll give you a chance. But I'm just saying statistically, it's disappointing because it hasn't worked. And I believe that it's because a lot of these people come to Cornbread Hustle feeling like um, they're more than, Mm. they're better than, and and that there's other options. And this is just an in case their other stuff doesn't fall through. So I can see how the ego might get in the way there for sure. And you know, what's funny. It also makes me think of having skin in the game, you know, so I think it might be twofold. You know, it's sort of like if you give away a service for free, people are less likely to follow through on it than if they were to pay for that service. They're probably more likely to show up, right? It's, it's, it's a little bit of, well, you know, I, I don't really need this, right? And then the ego kind of starts to come in as well. I can really, I can understand that. So it's twofold. So you're a staffing agency. You help not only the employers um, open up to become second chance friendly and nurture them on that journey, but then you also help clients needing a job get a job Mm -hmm. so it's twofold that's amazing and I also see on your website that you have an app to help people on the journey to sobriety could you give our listeners a little bit of info on that I have not even launched that yet but I am this week so I'll be happy to talk about it um so yeah cornbreadhustle.com forward slash get sober that app actually is the app that saved my life that Mm. app is the reason i walked into aa i actually had a company it's freedom 365 as you can see we have a partnership we didn't create it from the ground up in our garage Mm. thank god Um, (laughs) but they reached out to me actually they were reaching out to me for pr reasons asking if i wanted a demo of the app and if you know there are any possible partnerships or you know just reaching out as a marketing lead. Um, and so I, I logged into the app and in the comfort of my own home in PJs, I was able to re watch the videos. It starts out simple here, mm. 28 days without alcohol. Try that. So it was perfect for me. It was just a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> One of my challenges <laughs> where I'm not admitting I have a problem. And, and the first, you know, they started asking questions like, when is, name a time that you said you're not going to drink and you ended up getting drunk. And I was like, a time? Yeah. How about every time? <laughs> and then it asked, like, how many times did you say you were just going to have a couple but couldn't stop? And so it started asking questions like that. And I was, like, looking around in my living room, like, is anybody looking while I respond to these? <laughs> and... You know, that's what made me, it was about, between the book, Control Alcohol, and that app, it was education and self-reflection. That's Mm -hmm. it. That's all I needed. I didn't need to go do community service for hours on end and want to get a beer afterwards anyways. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to be with other people who were just convicted of a DWI in a DWI education class where we're all figuring out how we can meet up and get drunk afterwards anyway mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. I I needed to be in the comfort of my own home self-reflecting and learning a little bit more about this disease that I didn't even know was a disease until I was watching the video on the app so I ended up reaching out to them and I was like hey um 
would you guys be okay if maybe maybe I'll do some PR for you guys and you can let me have this app available for any of our applicants. I want them to have it. And I can't pay for it. They can't pay for it. So what do you think? <laughs> and, um, long story short, I ended up just, it, it grew into a bigger thing to where we have a true partnership now because I have the Dallas felony probation judge offering it. I, I went to him and I convinced him that instead of, instead of community service to allow, we're going to do a pilot where you allow your drug and alcohol convicted defendants use this instead. Mm -hmm. So right now we just launched a pilot. I haven't even announced it in the media or anything. We're about to working on it. And um, we're working with a really big um, manufacturer for breathalyzers. Mm -hmm. It was actually the same. I'm not going to name them yet, but it was the mm -hmm. same one that I had on my car. They actually called me and it was their HR people. She called to say, hey, I found your website. We have so many good candidates that have backgrounds. I, can we send them over to you? And I said, wait a second. So you're to tell me that you make all your money off people like me, but you won't hire people like me? And she was like, that sounds pretty bad when you put it like that. I said, yeah. I said, you guys are located here in the area, right? And they're like, yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to come by. I'm going to tell you guys my story because I think you guys need to understand. And I was like, and bring your marketing person because I think you guys will understand and appreciate from a marketing perspective, me as your client in my shoes telling you what it was like. And so I did. And um, it looks like they're going to end up offering this. Um, anybody who gets stuck with the breathalyzer like I did will automatically get this system for free. So hopefully their lives change like mine did. You know, this, this whole system, it, it's just so weird how things happen. Like, that's how mm -hmm. I put one foot in front of the other. I'm like, well, you know, maybe my DWI was really bad and it really sucked and I'm still angry about it. But I can't put aside the fact that the DWI resulted into hundreds of thousands of people that are going to be able to use an app to self-reflect for free. This is amazing. And again, this is just testimony to your ability to alchemize, to heed the omens, to following the signs, to doing your own self-work. I mean, I am just blown away by your relentlessness on this journey. And I'm so grateful for your willingness to share it. And wow, I feel like I want this app. <laughs> It's I'll give amazing. you a demo if you want to try it. Yes, please do. So I just have two or three more super quick questions. What is, if you were to look back on yourself or somebody in your position maybe a year ago and is listening to this podcast right now and saying, all right, I want to put the first foot forward. What would be the first actionable step? Of course, not solicited advice, but just maybe knowing what you know now, what would you share with yourself a year ago? Oh man, I would have said, you get plugged in. It's going to mm -hmm. be uncomfortable. You're not going to like it, but go get plugged in. The big reason why I didn't change for so long and why it took so much time is because naturally at my core, I'm a people pleaser. So I didn't, even if I wanted to change, I wasn't going to cut off any environments or friends or people. It, you know, I was 
it was party lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to change while still living my other lifestyle was just, it wasn't working. It was making me more miserable. So I'm not going to go so far to say, hey, go find yourself an AA room and walk in. <laughs> that, that definitely worked for me, but I know that's a little scary for people. So easiest, easiest words of advice. Go to Instagram, type in hashtag sober AF, hashtag um, sobriety rocks, hashtag one day at a time, all those hashtags and follow them. And then mm. your feed is going to be full of people sharing their, their transformations, their before and afters, their um, journeys, words of wisdom. And you're going to start to see that in your feed every day more than you see your friends partying and having alcohol and looking like they're having fun. And you're going to be able to compare the two. Your mm. friends who are excited that they all posted a picture that they had a wild and crazy fun drunk night compared to the account where the girl showing her before and after where now she looks like the hottest girl in the room. Mm. So that's a really, really, really amazing, super important first step, you know, get plugged in and do it in a way that, you know, what, like it bears the question, what are we consuming all day, every day? And not just alcohol, not just food, not just Netflix, but like, what are you watching? What content are you consuming? What conversations are you having? Who are you talking to? And this is such an important, important place to start. I love that. So Sherry, where can our listeners find you? Um, well, my Instagram is luminous underscore Sherry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm all over LinkedIn, Facebook. I'm very accessible. So Awesome. Um, Cornbreadhustle.com. I'm still a control freak, so I read every single (laughs) inquiry that comes in. Awesome. And I'll link all of this in the show notes for sure. So Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and definitely cornbreadhustle.com. So one last final question, Sherry. What does the term optimal health mean to you? Optimal health. I would believe that it has almost nothing to do with physical and it has all to do with mental and I feel like achieving optimal health would mean that your mind is healthy Mm. and I think we all are able as humans to achieve physical um, health with discipline and willpower you can be the most angriest person in the world and make it to the gym three times a day Mm. but that's not optimal health so I think optimal health would be to achieve a point, and I'm still not there yet, but to achieve a point where you're at peace and living in the present and letting go of control and letting life happen. Mm, letting life happen, trusting in divine timing, my friend. This has been such a powerful conversation. I'm really so grateful for you and your willingness to share. So, ah. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much. And one last thing mm-hmm. that I would say about, you know, taking that first step, you have to seek, like, when you reach out to those Instagram accounts or if you try to find a community of, you know, that's a little more uncomfortable for you, reaching out to the people you already hang out with and drink with and tell them that you're thinking about being sober doesn't really always work for me. I had like reverse intervention Mm. where everyone told me I didn't really have a problem and I'm taking it too far. And maybe I'm just upset about my DWI because think about it. I mean, 
people if you don't like change for yourself people around you don't like change people don't like change period mm. so just i would say what i wish i would have done sooner is seek outside seek they say don't take advice from people whose shoes you don't want to live in mm. so talking to your friends who currently get drunk with you probably isn't the best uh, set of advice or guidance. <laughs> I love that. And I, I've never heard the term reverse intervention before, but I, as soon as you said it, I knew exactly what you were talking about. So thank you so much for that insight. I think it is really important. And, and oftentimes, like you said, that change, that letting go, this process of shedding this life that we are so comfortable in is the hardest work no matter what journey you're on, whether it's addiction or healing of any kind or evolving, right? Involving, and, and I always say it's about remembering who we really are without all the BS that we've picked up along the way. It's not about becoming a new person, it's actually becoming your real self, like the soul work that, the work that your soul signed up for when we came to this earth. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, so much for sharing and for being on the journey yourself, because that, that journey of transformation is what is going to help others who are on it as well. So thank you. wanted to take a quick moment to give you, my community of listeners, some genuine appreciation. I know how valuable and precious our time is in today's world of productivity, and I couldn't be more grateful for yours today. If you feel that this episode was of value to you, I would be even more grateful if you were to share it with your people. Go ahead and copy and paste that link into messages, or if you're feeling really creative, pop a screenshot of the episode into your Instagram stories and send it on over to that person in your life who might need this boost of inspiration today. Don't forget to tag the podcast handle Let's Start Health and my personal account, The Yogi Yachty, so we can have all the fun connecting, building community, and sharing all the things. Thank you again, and remember, be curious and unwavering on this journey to health.